my name is Caitlin. Uh, I have not yet had the privilege of getting to just be up here and share in person anyway before, so this is really exciting for me. I'm one of our uh, two substitute teaching leaders. Um, and welcome to Pizza Flip Flop Night, the very famous and long-awaited. Thank you to everyone who helped make this really fun and festive and exciting. Um, so let me just pray because, as you guys probably know, there's like a gazillion different stories in our passages this week and a ton to just dive into. So I'll, uh, I'll waste no time. Jesus, um, thank you for putting that song on Pinky's heart this morning and for allowing us these moments to pause and to behold your glory the kingdom that you are ushering us into is just too great for our minds to take in. So I do ask that you would help us to behold your glory tonight in your word. I pray that we would be shaped by your generosity. I pray that your spirit would produce good fruit um, in all of our hearts, that you would guide and protect my words especially, and that all of it would be for your glory and for the good of your people that you've graciously brought here. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, grab your Bibles if you don't have them out, and we're in Matthew 20 and part of Matthew 21 tonight. As you're getting there, uh, this is so great, I did not realize, but the first kind of concept question on my brain was, how familiar are you with the concept of being hangry? And I did not put it together that I'd be talking to a group of people who are waiting to have pizza after I finished talking, so... This might be a shared experience, but you're probably kind of familiar with the concept of like the hangry meter. You start to notice you're getting really feisty about every little thing, and it's like tiniest irritations getting under your skin, and those emotions make you recognize there's a real issue going on, and it's probably not that your coworker's just super annoying today, but maybe that you skip lunch. And those emotions then trigger you to notice that condition in your body and seek a solution, in tonight's case, maybe pizza. But as I was thinking about just that whole system and the concept that we all kind of joke about, um, I was thinking how, as students of the Bible, we know that we have to take that idea of the hangry meter to the way deeper level. And I think our passage kind of speaks to that in an interesting way. So think instead, how familiar are you with your indignation meter? An official definition of indignation is the feeling or showing anger because of something wrong or unjust or unworthy. So what kinds of things in your daily life kind of trigger that indignation? I think we'll see that in this passage, it's really important that we start to become more and more sensitive to that because what provokes our indignation reveals whose kingdom we're living for. Now, just to kind of put some skin on what I'm even talking about, uh, a very (laughs) sobering, real-world example for me of why I need to be watchful of the indignation meter, I spent, you know, 10 minutes of my extremely precious time talking on the phone to a hotel concierge trying to book a room, and her system's not working, and then she has a busload of people coming, and she's like, "Uh, you're just going to have to call back later. And that wave of indignation just rose up in my heart. And in that moment, it was my needs and my time that reigned. And instead of graciously caring for this really busy, swamped worker, instead of showing her the compassion of Jesus, instead I was snippy and rude and just kind of hung up in a huff. And that's not an issue of being hangry, that's sin. 
That's my kingdom reigning in me. That's me in need of a really major overhaul to realize that I'm not living for myself, but I'm living out of the grace of God, and I need a new heart, one that seeks to serve and not be served. So I think as we start to dive into this very uh, fast-paced accounts in these passages, um, we are going to see the pattern that Jesus is showing that the values of his kingdom flip the entire frameworks of our world upside down. He's going to show us that everything we've learned from our world systems about the economy of fairness or the pursuit of social status, even how our religious structures work, they all need to be invaded by his kingdom values and purposes. And Jesus is going to use the indignation of those around him to show them that their hearts and values are on a completely different page than him a lot of the time in our passage. And when that happens, their hearts are hardened, and they miss out on what they were created to do, to worship and praise God in the face of Jesus standing right there, the enjoyment of his grace and his generosity, their participation in his grace and his greatness in the form of fruitful service and not empty self-exaltation. So this week we learn we must be watchful. The indignation that flows from self-reign pollutes our hearts. But I think a main truth we're going to learn is that once Jesus brings us into his kingdom, he is committed to his cleansing work in us. He's going to transform us from that crippling self-absorption and recreate us for lives of praise and humble servanthood. God's generosity in Christ frees us from sin and enables us to live lives of worship. So let's go ahead and jump into our passage, see how some of this plays out. I felt like we were kind of left on a cliffhanger last week in uh, Matthew chapter 19. So if you remember, we just saw the rich young man. He left sorrowful after asking Jesus what works he could do to basically earn eternal life. And then Peter, in his typical boldness, is like, well, remember Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. So what then will we have? And Jesus didn't disappoint. He told them that they will sit on 12 thrones, that they will share in his authority, that they will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But at the end of chapter 19, he kind of gives this like balancing phrase, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And I kind of left there, I was like, well, okay, that sounds really important and profound, and I don't really know what that means. <laughs> and I'm not sure that I can promise to like solve that mystery. I guess I'll leave that to you guys in your groups tonight. But I think we can notice that chapter 20 opens with the word for, and the first segment kind of closes with a repeat of that phrase, kind of mirrored. So the last will be first, and the first last. So I think that helps us to know we need to read this parable just with that context from last week still in our brains, that he's expanding on that idea. So let's go ahead and get into it. In chapter 20, verse 1, the parable is set up. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. This is a pretty familiar context for those disciples. There were lots in that time living as day laborers. They're kind of daily looking for work and income so that they could feed their families that very night. It's a pretty straining uh, life situation to be living in. So in those verses, we see 
The master, he hires laborers for his vineyard according to the expected terms. A denarius is that standard day's wage for about 12-hour workday. But then the master keeps going back to the market. He goes three more times throughout the day, once at nine, then at noon, then at three, and he finds more workers that are standing around the marketplace hoping that they were going to find some work that day. He seeks those out, invites them into his vineyard to work, and he promises, I'll pay you what's right. But then the situation in the story starts to get a little outrageous when he goes back to the marketplace at 5 p.m., the, prob- the sun's probably already descending, but he again seeks out idle workers who are likely desperate enough that they're still there waiting for work. With only one hour left before quitting time, he sends them into the vineyard. Now, about one hour later, the master has all the workers called in for payment, and that's when our story gets pretty shocking. The master, who himself only received one hour of laborer from that last crew, calls them up first and pays them an entire day's salary. Now, the story could stop there, and we'd have just a a tale about an eccentric, generous master who's now eased the burden of these idle workers at a great cost to himself. But the climax is still coming up, and it centers not on the fortune of those hired last, but on the expectation and the response of those hired first. It says in verse 10, When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But the same one denarius coin was placed in their hand. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Now, you'll have to share in your groups what your initial reactions were at this point in the story. I'm guessing at least some of us are right there with them, like, yeah, that's not fair. I mean, we all live and breathe and just grow up in an economic, merit-based system. This kind of workplace scenario evokes for us, work harder, earn more. The more you endure, the more you deserve. And their response is indignation. There it is right away. The feeling or showing anger because they've perceived that they've been treated wrong unjust or unworthy. They've looked around to compare their effort to reward ratio with the others around them, and they feel shortchanged to the point that they don't have, it's not even on their radar to maybe marvel at the unusual generosity of such a kind master or to experience thankfulness that they were able and chosen to earn their day's wage and feed their families. But instead, they can only grumble and they accuse him of injustice. Now, in verses 13 through 15, the master addresses these accusations of the workers in a way that I think sounds patient but firm. In his response, he's showing them the issue is not injustice on his part. The issue is the envy in their hearts. Verse 13, friends, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And that's how the parable ends. Jesus concludes it with that repeated idea. So, the last will be first, and the first last. So there we have it, all clear at this point. 
I think with every parable that we're given that Jesus doesn't spell out for us, I think it leaves us with a lot of facets to ponder, maybe more questions than we started with. But I think a few probably safe assumptions that we could see the master of the vineyard representing God, and we see him spare those workers from idle lives and call them in his timing to come into his vineyard and to work for him. Most agree that the equal payment everyone receives represents the reality that all believers, no matter how long or how hard that they've worked during this lifetime, are just equalized at the cross. And they will receive the same inheritance of eternal life on the basis of God's grace in Christ Jesus. And I think there's so many other uh, aspects that we can unpack, but I'll highlight just one. What assumptions do we have about the economy of works and fairness that need to be overturned in our hearts and minds so that we can fully embrace Jesus' kingdom of generosity? Look one more time at the climax of the parable in verse 13. The master addresses the workers' very serious accusation against him about injustice. In his response, we see him confirm and defend himself. The master is just. He is free to choose how to use his abundance for the good of others. And then he turns it to the real problem. Do you begrudge my generosity? I saw this week that the literal Hebrew phrase for that is, is your eye evil because I am good? I thought that was such an evocative phrase to capture that idea. Could our understanding of what is right and fair be so embedded in the economic mindset of our world that our eyes could look at God's great generosity extended to others and identify it as evil or unjust or wrong? I think maybe intellectually I can kind of embrace the idea of like, okay, salvation is gift by grace, not by works. But this feeling of indignation or self-pity or envy can absolutely still be sparked in my heart by daily circumstances, by the daily world of just watching God allocate his blessing and his grace in different ways uh, by his sovereign wisdom. Which scenarios trigger the indignation switch of your heart most easily? I can think about some of the classic grumblings throughout my story. Why do they get so many career advancements when I've worked just as hard and I'm chronically unemployed? Why were they granted a thriving relationship when I've poured my time out for things that the Lord loves? Why them, not me? Didn't I work just as hard? Why wasn't I given these blessings? And I think this parable and this tension and what the master is trying to show those workers that were hired first it really woke me up to how important that indignation alarm is in my heart because that jealous eye will wither my soul. It will rob me from rejoicing in my generous God who abounds in grace to others and to me. It will pollute my heart from deep gratitude for all the mercy that he's poured out to rescue me from my sin if I'm just constantly focused and trying to weigh the scales here on this side of of life. I need him to rewire my heart according to the generosity of his kingdom so that I see everything through that lens. And I think that's a principle that we can learn from this first division. God's kingdom runs on his generous grace, not our works. He owns all, and he's just, 
to disperse his generosity according to his infinite wisdom. But we definitely need a plan for what are we going to do when we feel indignation creeping in instead of that sense of gratitude and awareness of his grace. I think first we have to cast ourselves onto the Lord. We have to ask his spirit to anchor and transform us with all of these radical truths about God's economy. The reminder that in God's economy, all we have is grace. And I think we can also continue to just encourage and comfort one another with those reminders that somehow, in ways we probably can't even understand or think about on this side of heaven, in God's eternal economy, even our losses and afflictions are promised that they're creating for us an eternal weight of glory. That in that space, every one of us will have nothing but cause to marvel at the riches that we've received by being covered in Jesus' righteousness. So, uh, from this parable, which I'm excited for everyone to get to discuss so many other facets of in their groups, uh, let's just dive right into our second section. There's uh, three divisions tonight, and the second one is um, verse 17 through 28. And it contains two accounts that show that Jesus is continuously, patiently teaching the disciples that their hearts and their minds, their values and pursuits, they need to be radically transformed to align with his kingdom. The first little section here in 17 through 19, Jesus is again foretelling how now his imminent fate is going to be as they get close to Jerusalem. Uh, He's telling them, forewarning them what's going to happen as soon as he gets there. I think the tension is really starting to heighten as he's giving them new details. He says in uh, 18, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. This announcement Jesus makes, it's preparing the disciples, and it's also preparing us for this final turning point in the book of Matthew. Once he enters Jerusalem, the culmination of his whole ministry, his teaching, his confrontation with the religious authorities, all of that will lead to his death and his resurrection. And with this very like weighty, heavy, sobering reminder ringing in the air, we're going to see a really big contrast to what is recorded next for us. While the king of all authority has his eyes set on crucifixion, the suffering that comes before glory, The disciples are still grappling and have their eyes set on attaining honor. And we see that in uh, verses 20 through 28. Now, the mother of James and John is in on it. She kneels before Jesus and she gives this request. Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your kingdom. Those are positions of honor all throughout scripture. And Jesus... Talk in your groups about what you think was uh, going on with this mother's request and what her motives were, but uh, Jesus speaks right to James and John and basically is trying to show them that you're just not on the same page with me. He says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? I take their response as kind of unflinching. We are able. 
And it feels like they're not even having the same conversation because throughout scripture, the cup is symbolic of one's divinely determined destiny. And Jesus has just told them super plainly that his cup includes pain and death and crucifixion. But Jesus foretells them that they will drink from his cup. And ultimately, James is the one who becomes the first apostle to be martyred in Acts 12. John was persecuted and exiled. But Jesus also reminds them, he, the one with God, he defers to God's authority saying, it is not Jesus is to grant who will sit at his right and left, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by his father. I think in essence, he's redirecting their focus. It should not be on campaigning for thrones now, but their focus should be on picking up their cross and following Jesus and entrusting their being and their future status to the Father, as Jesus is doing. Now, from the other ten, we once again see the response of indignation. They seem a little feisty that that James and John are trying to secure some kind of higher position of honor over them. And Jesus knows their hearts, and he calls them back, and he says some things because they really need to understand this crucial reality. His kingdom is radically different than the political frameworks that they're used to in this world. He tells them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. And we feel the weight of that in our world and hear this beautiful statement that follows Jesus's reality of his kingdom. It shall not so among you. There is no room for selfish ambition or self-promotion or presumptuous arrogance in serving Jesus's kingdom. In fact, he says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Can you imagine what they're even trying to understand of what he's saying? These are the lowliest positions in Jewish society. And yet Jesus reverses their stigma in his body and he sets that position of servant as the role that should be desired and pursued. Verse 28, my favorite verse of this entire book, I think, it concludes with a rare statement from Jesus that explains the purpose of his suffering and his death. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I think we have to just pause for one second and unpack those three key phrases in that incredibly powerful statement. First, who came? The Son of Man. That's Jesus' favorite self-designation. It encapsulates the humble, suffering servant whose death and resurrection will redeem his people, but also the glorious king and judge who will return to establish God's kingdom on earth. It's, I, I, need, I need his help to even take in what is this humility of Jesus, that he would take on human form and dwell with us, not in a way that just parades his glory all over us and lords over his power over everyone, but who would come to serve And not even only just serve and restore all of these finite sinful humans, but that he would serve by giving his life as a ransom. Now the word ransom is to purchase, the price of release. 
often referred to as the money paid to release slaves or to recover those that were captured in warfare. And that's just what he did for us. Jesus paid the ransom fee for us who were held captive to sin. I thought that hit on that first division instinct we have, the illusion that we want justice, we want things to be fair from God. But this makes it clear. In reality, the fair treatment for our service to sin is is death. We don't have the ability to pay the ransom price to free ourselves. And this is why Christ set his sights on Jerusalem. He knows and sees his upcoming suffering, his unjust condemnation, even crucifixion waiting there. And yet he continued his course. And he's going to give his perfect sinless life as a ransom for sinners. And that word ransom, for many, uh, that word for refers to in the place of. He gave his life in the place as a substitution. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. Now, if we have ears to hear, I think that one sentence alters not only our eternal state for all of us who've been ransomed by the life of Jesus, But then it calls us to a radically new way of living the rest of our days of this earthly life. And that's the principle that we can learn from this division. The recipients of Jesus' sacrifice are transformed into humble servants. So the first primary reflection question we have to ask is, have you received the gift of life that Jesus has given as the ransom price to free you from the condemnation of your sins? And if you're not, or if you're unsure, I just urge you, earnestly count the cost and the opportunity before you. Because Jesus did come, and he, on a mission to die, a horrible, undeserved death, so that you would be set free, so that the record of your sins would be nailed to his cross, and that he could be the substitute in your place. And then, if you have entered his kingdom, how have you seen that kingdom's transforming work within you? He's showing us in this passage, our instincts will start to shift as we participate in his kingdom. How can I, it's, no, 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 it's gonna shift from, how can I increase my fulfillment or my resume or my resources and start to turn? How can I best serve? How can I best invest in the work that he's doing on earth now for his glory and for the good of all those around me? Do you feel how unnatural and impossible that change is for us to produce in ourselves. We can't even keep New Year's resolutions until now. But thankfully, we're not left to muster the strength to pursue his kingdom greatness by ourselves. We can pray boldly because we know it's his will that as we soak our souls in the realities of Jesus' infinite generosity toward us, that his kingdom will start to grow exponentially in our hearts and start to change our desires to change the way we see the opportunities around us and to desire to serve the people around us. And I was thinking about it. Those opportunities to grow in service, they usually feel like interruptions. Probably because we design our best plans to serve our purposes and to, you know, craft our, like, easiest way to point A and point B. And I am humbled to even think about how often I feel the sting of indignation 
when others' physical or spiritual needs require me to drop my plans and make myself available for them. But we can pray that God will give us the wisdom and the desire and the strength to yield to those interruptions as an opportunity to serve in his strength and to see his glory. I don't have a timepiece, so we're just going to go for it. Oh, yeah, I do. Okay, so uh, finally in chapter 21, I'll just hit a couple of highlights for us. Um, Again, chapter, this is our third division, and you'll have a chance to talk in your groups about the healing of the two blind men, hopefully. Um, I'm going to, with great pain, skim over that one, but it is a beautiful account, and it's beautiful to see that his authority as Messiah is used, again, not to grab a claim for himself, but to seek out, how do I serve and heal and bless those that even the crowds are trying to silence. But what's more than that, his authority used to heal those men on the roadside, it's, it's confirming his claim and his authority as the Messiah, as the son of David. And as he is going to head into Jerusalem and have this triumphal entry, the crowd that has been with him and witnessed his authority to heal the blind is going to be the ones that follow him into the city and celebrate him as the king. So, uh, in 21, as we see him walk, uh, prepared to head into the city of Jerusalem, we're seeing the, the beginning of his final week of ministry. In only five days, he will be crucified. And in one week, he will be resurrected. And Matthew's going to kind of slow down and give us eight chapters here of those final events that took place, um, just because they're so critical. So in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 21, we see a lot of intentionality from Jesus about his final entrance into Jerusalem. He's sending the disciples to get these donkeys. um, And Matthew's telling us that that's an important point. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy by his choice of transportation into the city. He paraphrases Zechariah 9, 9, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the beast of burden. So Jesus is even using his entrance to confirm that he is the Messiah, God's anointed king the promised son of David. And then we see these crowds in verses 8 through 11. They've been following him. They've witnessed and heard about his miracles and his authority. And they're now forming like a king's welcome into the city. It's kind of a picture of what you expect when royalty comes to town and everyone's lining the street with flags. Here they are waving palms. They're putting their cloaks on the road. These were common things that were done to welcome kings, apparently. And then this kind of uh, chant starts spreading through the people. They're quoting a psalm that was well-known, Psalm 118. It was used at festivals and the Passover specifically. And now they're quoting this, and it's coming to life right before their eyes. They're, They're crying out, Hosanna, which means, Lord, save now. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Isn't there just such a rightness and a beauty about this scene? It's like a little slice of history where Jesus is being praised and celebrated on earth as king that he is. And I think we can trust that as his kingdom takes root in our hearts more and more, that he's preparing us 
for that same kind of life, the life of humble praise, and that that will continue into all of eternity. Finally, in our last account of this week, we see Jesus head into the temple. It seems to be one of the first orders of business in his time in Jerusalem. As we know, the temple was that place that was designated by God for worship and sacrifice. But the practices that had been going on in that day, they had turned that largest area of the temple court into some kind of market. I read an author who depicted the atmosphere as a county fair, a stock market, and a religious circus all rolled into one. There was just much corruption and exploitation that had just infiltrated every aspect of the exchange of currencies and the selling of animals that would be suitable for sacrifice. And we've seen a lot of unrighteous indignation from the humans throughout this passage, but here we see an expression of true righteous indignation from the Messiah. It says, Jesus drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned their tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He indicts them by quoting Isaiah 56, my house shall be called a prayer of, for all nations, but you make it a den of robbers. His indignation, the showing of anger because of something wrong or unjust or unworthy, is fully right. His priorities are shaped by the kingdom reality. And he rebukes the ones who should be serving the people's worship and reconciliation with God. And instead, they're exploiting them for their own selfish gain. This temple scene here, it closes with a very stark contrast. We see Jesus, he's there welcoming the blind and the lame. Again, he's revealing his authority by healing them. And Matthew highlights the chief priests and scribes, they saw the wonderful things that he did. And they heard the cries of the children that are echoing what was sung in the parade, Hosanna to the son of David. Their promised Messiah has come and that he's in their midst. But their response is not praise, it's indignation. Jesus rejects their complaints about the children's praise by quoting from Psalm 8-2. He just takes it right to the next level. He tells these experts of scripture, have you never read... Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. In Psalm 8, that praise is the praise for the majestic name of the Lord. And Jesus claims that that verse speaks of him. The praise belongs to him, God made flesh. So I think a principle that we could see in this last division is that Jesus cleanses his people's hearts for worship and praise. If you are in Christ, you can expect He's committed to cleansing you of anything that's hindering your fullest purpose, true, abundant life of praise to God and humble service to others. What tables has he already overturned in your life in order to restore you? What is he exposing in your heart? And how are you cooperating with him? How can you pray for a greater vision of his purposes when he's calling you to let go of things that are lesser than his praise? And when you experience indignation in some form this week, because you will, will you pause? Will you ask the Holy Spirit to show you whose kingdom is being offended in that moment? He is committed to his cleansing work. So ask him, ask him to give you eyes to see his immense generosity given to you in Christ 
Trust that he will empower you to walk in the fullness of life, in a life of praise and service in the power of Jesus alongside your most generous master and savior and king. Let me pray for us. Father, these things are too great for us. We would never dream them up, and yet you have promised that that is the work that you are doing in your people of restoration, of rescue, of pouring out grace upon grace in which we now stand. And so I ask that you would help us to grow and to participate, to behold your glory, to desire to become more like you. But I especially ask, and I thank you for answering that prayer in my heart, that you would soften us again to the reality of what you have done by giving your son as a ransom. And I pray that we would press into that reality with all of our heart, soul, and strength. Would you bless the time that we have? Would you bless the food that you've graciously provided for us? And would you make the time of fellowship one that is honoring to you and good for our hearts? And Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.